Imagine you love to scuba dive. It's peaceful under the sea. There are many amazing things to see, such as exotic fish, coral, octopi, even sharks. One day, you visit Australia, and you're so excited because as an experienced diver, the Great Barrier Reef is on your list of places to dive. You and your partner book in on a scuba diving boat that takes divers out to explore the world-famous Great Barrier Reef. Everyone jumps in the water, it's a calm day, the sun is shining, and the visibility couldn't be better. You and your partner spend an hour underwater taking in as much sea life as possible, and it is magical. But when you surface, all you see is water, water, and more water. No land in sight, no people in sight, and no boat in sight. Even if you wanted to swim to shore, you have no idea which direction will take you further into the abyss and which direction leads to land. It is hauntingly clear the boat has left without you and your partner. You start to think, oh, they'll be back when they realize their mistake. We won't have to stay here overnight. We should only have to stay here for a couple of hours, right? Hours pass and the sun starts to set. I'm sure it's a beautiful sunset, but in this situation, it is terrifying because it means darkness is quickly approaching. For Tom and Eileen Lonergan, this was their reality. Abandoned on a dive trip to the Great Barrier Reef. Today I will be covering two different cases, both involving this famous Australian tourist destination. How could dreams become nightmares so quickly? Well, come hang out with me while I talk true crime. Welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. Since we are heading down under in this double case episode today, I wanted to tell everyone about an Australian podcast called They Don't Stay Dead. In each episode, they cover paranormal and ghostly phenomenons from all over Australia. Let's hear from them. Hey, paranormies. I'm Brittany. And I'm Alexa. And we're the hosts of They Don't Stay Dead. We're a paranormal podcast from Australia, and we've made it our mission to share with you all the real-life ghost stories and haunted locations from our home, as well as encounters with supernatural beings and reports of unknown mysteries. From haunted asylums and ghost ships to big cat cryptids and alien encounters, there's something for everyone. We release new episodes every Thursday, and you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to check out our Instagram at they don't stay dead for weekly updates. We get a little bit spooky and a lot silly. So join us for some laughs and a tale of the unknown. Stay spooky, paranormies. If you're looking for some haunted, lighthearted, spooky Australian stories, they are it. With Halloween approaching, I highly recommend adding them to your pumpkin carving playlist. Now, let's get into this week's case. 
Australia is a gorgeous country with a lot to offer, including the largest coral reef in the world. It is unbelievably beautiful. The water is clear and blue. The sea life is immense. It is a diver's dreamland. The reef stretches over 2,000 kilometers and is actually made up of over 3,000 individual reefs. It is large and unique and a wonder to behold. Exploring this seventh wonder of the world is generally safe. It's estimated around 2 million people flock to the Great Barrier Reef every year to witness its magic. But not everything goes according to plan 100% of the time. And unfortunately for Tom and Eileen, their trip was one of the ones that did not go to plan. Tom and Eileen had met and married in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 10 years previous to their Great Barrier Reef dive trip. In 1996, they traveled to Tuvalu and Fiji in teaching positions for the U.S. Peace Corps, and it was in 1998 when they were on their way back to America that they decided to stop in Australia. Both were into scuba diving, and having a chance to dive the Great Barrier Reef was just not something they wanted to pass up. They arrived in Port Douglas, Queensland, Australia in late January to turn this dream into a reality. Northern Queensland certainly has its dangers, but the couple felt like they were in good hands when they booked their diving trip with a dive company called Outer Edge. On January 25th, 1998, Tom and Eileen were among the 26 passengers to go out that day with Outer Edge to St. Crispin's Reef, which is one of the thousands of reefs that make up the Great Barrier Reef. I can't say exactly how far from shore they were because some sources said different things from 25 miles to 60 miles from shore. Either way, they were very, very far from shore. According to visitportdouglasdaintree.com, St. Crispin's Reef is 55 kilometers from Port Douglas and a Gin Court Reef is 65 kilometers. And Gin Court Reef, I mentioned because it will come up. I believe they dove in multiple spots that day and may have started at St. Crispin's and ended at a Gin Court. They, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, a gin court, a gin court. They get out onto the blue calm waters. The sun is shining. The sea life is booming. Everyone gets on their wetsuits, their vests, their weight belts, air tanks. They're all ready for this. All the diving things, they've got them all on and they all plunge into the thriving sea life below. It would have been absolutely stunning down there with all the live coral and tropical fish, so much happening. Each diver also has a dive slate, which is a special board used for divers to write on as a way to communicate with each other underwater. They can write and erase stuff like, whoa, did you see that reef shark? Wow, this is awesome. And how is your air tank going? Stuff like that. About 40 minutes to an hour later, Tom and Eileen come to the surface. They would have been shocked to see no one. No one and no boat. They were out there all alone, forgotten, abandoned at sea. This is when the nightmare begins for them. We do know that they did survive the night at sea from something a fisherman finds in the water, but I will talk about that in a moment. So how did the dive boat not notice they were down two divers when they left the reef. Is there no headcount system done? Weren't Tom and Eileen stuffed on the boat? Did no divers notice they were missing the people who sat beside them on the way there? 
it doesn't seem like there was a foolproof way to ensure that everyone was back on the boat. And I'm not really sure if a headcount was even done before the boat drove off. I mean, if people were moving around and jumping in and out of the water, things could get confusing. But I would have thought it would be a situation like an attendance call out in school where your name is called and you have to say here and then you can't leave the boat again. And I think it was a situation like this where they were doing a head count, two people jumped back in the water, those two people got back on the boat and they were double counted. Tom and Eileen's stuff was found at the dive station later that day after all passengers had come in and left. But their bag simply got placed in lost and found. The workers just thought someone had forgotten it and would come back for it later, possibly the next day. I also heard their shoes were there as well, but the workers just thought whoever owned them walked barefoot on the beach back to where they were staying, which I mean probably happens a lot in beach towns. The place Tom and Eileen were staying had sent a shuttle bus to pick them up, but when they never got on the bus, the driver just thought they made other plans or found another way back, which again, probably happens a lot. The next day, the dive shop still hadn't caught their error and sent another boat full of divers out to the same reefs. I'm thinking it would have been nearly impossible for Tom and Eileen to hold their exact position in the sea as they would have drifted away from the reef. But had Tom and Eileen been able to hold their position until the next afternoon, they may have been spotted by the dive company. Maybe Tom and Eileen were in the area still, but they had drifted a few kilometers and they could have been found if someone was only looking for them. What the dive company did find though was weight belts used by divers on the bottom of the sea floor. The location they found the weight belts would have been where Tom and Eileen were abandoned the day before. The dive company took them thinking they had scored free weight belts, the same belts that they use. It's more likely that they were their weight belts and it was from Tom and Eileen who had abandoned them as to not be weighed down. The belts were found where Tom and Eileen had been diving. And I'm thinking maybe they dropped them so they could stare at them and tr to try not to drift, to try to hold their position, to use this as an anchor point in hopes that the dive boat was coming back to look for them in that location. Or maybe it was so they could try to swim to shore. Two days after Tom and Eileen went on that dive trip, finally the owner of the dive shop caught on when he opened the bag in the lost and found. Curiosity didn't come soon enough though. In that bag, he found Tom's wallet, both Tom and Eileen's passports and other items. These are not things people forget about. Tom and Eileen would have needed their passports to get on their flight to go back to America. So this was a huge sign that something had happened. The owner of this dive shop who looked in the bag and discovered these items is Jack Naren, and he immediately contacted police. Search and rescue leapt into action scouring the reefs for the couple, but unfortunately after three days of feverishly searching, they were never found. It's only assumed that they died in the water and their bodies went out into the abyss. There are a few different theories about this aspect, which I will get into later, including theories that they faked their own death. Okay, now let's talk about this dive slate. Tom and Eileen's dive slate was recovered months later by a fisherman over 160 kilometers away from where they were last seen diving the day that they were left at sea. 
On this dive slate board is how we know they survived the night. The fisherman pulls it out of the water and he reads it. This is what he read. Monday, January 26, 1998, 8 a.m. To anyone who can help us, we have been abandoned on Ajin Court Reef by MV Outer Edge. 25 Jan, 98, 3 p.m. Please help us. Come to rescue us before we die. Help! Exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. What a absolutely haunting find for that fisherman because of this slate board being recovered we know they survived to at least 8 a.m the next morning before this slate was found though something else had been discovered washed up on the beach and it was Eileen's wetsuit or believed to be when I first heard this I thought oh man it must be shredded to bits because I like many people were thinking sharks must have taken them but no This wetsuit was totally intact with just a couple tears from coral in the armpit and butt area. Nothing severe. There was no blood on it, no shark teeth, no shreds. It had some barnacles on it which were examined and believed to have been on the suit since late January, which tracks with the timeline of the couple's disappearance. The thing is though, they say it's Eileen's wetsuit because it matched her size. I'm not sure if there was much more evidence than that to tie her to this wetsuit. So how can we be so sure it's Eileen's and it didn't fly off a moving boat into the sea or something? There was things that washed up that certainly did belong to the couple, such as inflatable dive vests, and we know this because it actually had their names written in them. Also, one of Eileen's diving fins was discovered as well, and like the vest, it had her name written in it as well. Air tanks also washed up on shore, and they were believed to be Tom and Eileen's. Possibly the dive shop could confirm that. I don't know how they confirm that exactly. The tanks did still have air in them and weren't completely empty. The vest, the air tank, and the fin all had no evidence to suggest a shark had even touched them. They were not shredded. They were not bloodied. There was no shark teeth marks in them. And certainly they were not covered in blood in in any way. There was no blood found on them. So then why would the couple remove their vest? This becomes the question. Why is the couple removing their stuff? Particularly these vests because these vests is what would have kept them buoyant. It is speculated that perhaps the couple were beyond dehydrated, the sun beating down on them, surrounded by salt water and fear. It's possible they became delirious and possibly didn't know what they were doing when they started removing their vests and other equipment. Other theories started to emerge after the couple's diaries were found and there was a few entries in there that really piqued people's interests. I do want to say right now that these entries were used in court to try to protect the owner of the dive shop from being found guilty of manslaughter. Eileen's father believes this tactic to be slanderous and reputation destroying regarding his daughter and Tom and that these entries were taken out of context. These entries were brought up to raise the question of what if Tom and Eileen purposefully got left at sea as if it was their choice? I will read what entries were released and then talk more about the theories that came from them. Eileen wrote, Tom's not suicidal, but he's got a death wish that could lead him to what he desires, and I could get caught in that. 
And she also writes, he hopes to die a quick and painless death and he hopes it happens soon. Then in Tom's diary, they found that Tom wrote this. Like a student who has finished an exam, I feel that my life is complete and I am ready to die. From these entries, it was argued this could have been a murder-suicide, but that would for sure not be a quick and painless death if that was in fact what Tom wanted. There was also the theory that the two faked their own death and people were reporting seeing them all over Australia claiming that they were not dead and they were walking around alive and well. I read that the couple's bank accounts were never touched and this was said to support the fact that they didn't fake their own death. But I was like, why would they go through all that trouble to fake their own death and then touch their bank accounts? Like that's going to tip someone off immediately. One guy said he even thinks they may have ended up on his dive boat as he was two heads above what he was when he left and that his passengers were all Italian, yet he remembers hearing Americans talking. It was in October of 1998 that Jack Naren was charged with manslaughter, but he was never found guilty. Outer Edge, the dive company, they did plead guilty to negligence, and Jack Naren did end up losing this business, and I can only assume that they received very hefty fines. I'm not sure if jurors were swayed by the journal entries and the theories that the couple killed themselves or faked their own deaths to start new lives, or possibly they thought that the workers who were on the boat that day were the guilty ones rather than the owner, but Jack Naren, he was acquitted. I'm sure this weighs heavily on his conscience and the workers who neglected to make sure all the divers were back on board. I, I would not want to bear the weight of that. We will never truly know what happened to Tom and Eileen. What's believed happened is that the couple's demise was most likely brought on by becoming dehydrated, drowning, or being eaten by sharks. It's been stated that the Queensland government cracked down after this and brought in stiffer regulations for dive boat companies in order to avoid another tragedy like this. Eileen's father, John Haynes, told The Guardian this, quote, it leaves a big hole in you to lose your kid. That's part of your life. I wish they had found them so we had something. I suppose we have the Great Barrier Reef. They're part of that, unquote. If this case sounds familiar but different, then it's probably because you saw the film inspired by this true story called Open Water. It's a similar plot where two divers go out on a dive trip in the Bahamas, I believe it was, and they get left behind by the dive boat. The entire movie is them floating in the water, eventually being attacked and killed by sharks. The most probable outcome in this case is that Tom and Eileen did die at sea after being abandoned, whether it was from sharks, whether it was from being dehydrated and becoming delirious and drowning. We don't know. That concludes the first case involving the Great Barrier Reef in this episode. The next case I'm about to talk about has a more sinister tone to it. Let's talk about this next case. 34-year-old Gabe Watson and 26-year-old Tina Watson, previously Tina Thomas, had been married for less than two weeks, I believe it was 11 days, when they eagerly found themselves boarding a dive trip cruise around the Great Barrier Reef on a large catamaran for their honeymoon. The couple had sparked up a relationship in 2001, and in April of 2003, Gabe proposed to Tina during an Easter egg hunt. 
the egg that she had to look for ended up having an engagement ring in it. It's been said that Gabe had this ring for a while and Tina knew about it for six months as Gabe had left it sitting out in plain sight for her to see. Tina got tired of waiting and wanted to date other people, but then and only then did Gabe actually propose. This detail was made to sound as if Gabe was lording this ring over her and when she grew tired of waiting, that's when he sprung it on her. Tina's parents didn't particularly like Gabe, but despite this, they married on October 11th of 2003. Before the wedding though, Tina had asked her father something weird, something her father would not do. About a month before the wedding on September 26, Tina went to her father and asked him to increase her life insurance policy to the maximum payout and make Gabe the sole beneficiary. This was allegedly Gabe's idea and her father told her there was no rush to do this and it never happened, but he told her to tell Gabe that it did. After the October 11th wedding, Tina and Gabe flew to Australia on the 12th of October, which is the next day to start their honeymoon. The first week was spent in Sydney and the second week was spent in Townsville, which is in Northern Queensland. Gabe and Tina came all the way from Alabama to Australia for this dream dive honeymoon. Tina, she wasn't the dive enthusiast that Gabe was though. In fact, it really seems like Tina didn't even want to learn how to dive, but Gabe had pressured her into it. Apparently he had told her things like she has to learn the things that he likes to do. And I, when I read that, I was like, shut the front door, Gabe. No, why does Tina have to learn the things that you like to do? Tina, she wanted to learn to dive, not because she wanted to dive, but because Gabe was telling her that she basically had to. She took lessons in her local dive area before the trip and completed only 11 dives, none of which were deeper than 30 feet and none were in the ocean. From what I gather, I don't think Tina was comfortable under the water to say the least. I did read somewhere that her dive instructor said that she was quite panicky under the water or she was like the least comfortable person under the water that he had ever instructed. This boat they were going on was a week-long cruise, which would take divers to many locations along the Great Barrier Reef. The very first night, they just boarded, and they met the other divers who were also doing this trip. There were some very, very experienced divers on the boat, some of which who had been diving for 25 years. The next day, on October 22nd, everyone was to dive the first stop, which was a shipwreck. This dive spot is called Yungala. Apparently, this is really amazing as coral is growing all over this shipwreck, which sits 100 feet below the surface of the sea. This is a tricky dive for experienced divers as there are strong currents and depth involved. But get this, this type of dive they are doing, it's called a drift dive because you have to let go of a chain underwater, drift over the wreck in the current and grab another chain, which is about 300 feet from the first chain. And then you follow that chain up to the surface. And you're doing this, obviously you're diving, so you're all underwater. You've got a strong current. It, it, it just seems really intense to me. I mean, I don't dive, but this seems really intense for a beginner like Tina. Now, this cruise 
catamaran Great Barrier Reef experience. This company, they did offer Tina something called orienteering, which I think is for them to assist her. But Gabe was really adamant that he didn't need assistance and that he he and Tina could do this, just the two of them. Tina was not an experienced diver and she had never dove in the ocean before and seemingly wasn't even comfortable diving. Sources did mention that Tina had a heart condition which made her heart beat fast, caused shortness of breath, and even passing out. She did have surgery about two years previously for this condition and that seemed to fix it. But still, I mean, this could have something to do with why she's so uncomfortable diving and why having extra people there would make her feel more comfortable. Gabe, on the other hand, had been diving for years and was even certified in rescue diving. Maybe that made Tina feel a bit more comfortable in this situation. Tina and Gabe set out for the first dive of the day on the first diving day of their trip. So we got the first dive on the first day. When they go underwater, Gabe said his dive computer was beeping and didn't seem to be working properly. A dive computer seems pretty essential as it monitors vital things such as how much air you have and the depths you are going, like how far you're going down, how when you're coming up, stuff like this. With his dive computer beeping at him, he decided to resurface with Tina, go back to the catamaran, go back to the boat that they were guests on, and so he could suss out his dive computer. He said the batteries were backwards, and when he corrected the error, the dive computer started working again. Later, police would test this theory and discovered... It wouldn't work at all, let alone beep if the batteries were in backwards. I mean, you put batteries in your alarm clock backwards, you it's not going to work. It's just not going to work. Think of anything electronic. Think about your remote control for your television. You put those batteries in backwards, it's not going to work. They also found that this dive computer was working when Gabe said that it wasn't working. It recorded the first attempted dive down and then him coming back up and then going back to the catamaran to suss it out. So once his dive computer was working, again, he and Tina go back out and they start the dive at 10.30 a.m. They descend into the sea and it doesn't seem like hardly any time passes, roughly two minutes I believe, when Tina starts to make movements like something might not be right and she wants to head back up to the surface. And this is according to Gabe. First I will talk about what Gabe says happened, then I'm going to get into the cracks of the story. I did read an article published by NBC News that Gabe had about 16 slightly altered versions of what happened under the sea that day. Gabe says he and Tina were about 40 feet below the surface and Tina signals to him that she needs to go up. Gabe said he started pulling her to the surface when she began to sink and panic. He then said Tina reached her arm up and accidentally knocked his mask and regulator, at which point he had to let go of her to correct his mask and regulator. When he let go of her, he said she kept sinking and she sank so fast he couldn't get to her. So he surfaced as fast as he could to get help. That's Gabe's story. Also, remember, Gabe is a certified rescue diver, so how could he not rescue his own wife? Gabe said he alerted two other divers for help when he was heading back to the boat or back up to the surface, but later police interviewed 
everyone on that boat and diving and not a single person said Gabe signaled them underwater for help. So these people that Gabe signaled for help apparently just disappeared. Tina was discovered on the bottom of the sea floor by a dive instructor from the boat Tina and Gabe were cruising with. He just happened to notice Tina laying there with no air bubbles coming out and he knew immediately something was terribly wrong. So he saw this on his own accord. It's, he was not alerted by Gabe. This, this dive instructor was swimming and he was like, whoa, that doesn't look right. He swam down and he was like, shit, something is really, really wrong. And actually another diver unknowingly took a picture of Tina on the bottom of the seafloor in that moment because he was taking a picture of his wife diving around having a good time. And in the background, you can see Tina laying on the ocean floor. And the guy who took this photo, he didn't even realize it at the time. He discovered it once he got the film developed. And it is a haunting picture when you know what's going on in this picture. The dive instructor didn't even hesitate when he saw Tina. He swam down all the way down to the ocean floor. I think it was like 100 feet. And he saw that Tina's eyes were open. But she wasn't moving and she wasn't breathing. Now, as fast as he could, he swam to the surface carrying Tina's lifeless body with him. He brought her to the nearest boat, which was not the one Tina and Gabe were guests on. He brought Tina to another boat. Once the dive instructor gets Tina on this other boat, a doctor just happened to be on there and they try to revive Tina for over half an hour. But unfortunately, she couldn't be brought back. Tina's time of death was 11.21 a.m. The doctor then went over to the boat Gabe was on and gave him the terrible news that his wife had died. A lot of people thought it odd that within that half hour, over a half hour, some sources say 40 minutes, that Tina was being given CPR on that other boat, Gabe didn't go over there to be with her. He didn't go over there to be beside her. Instead, he was asking people for hugs on the boat he was on. I think somebody came up and was like, oh, are you okay? Is there anything I can do? And he's like, I need a hug. Remember how I said that there were divers on that cruise with 25 years diving experience? Well, they were actually dive masters, which apparently there is no higher level to achieve after that. Meaning these experienced divers were very, very good and knew just about everything when it came to diving. These dive masters are Ken Snyder and Doug Millsap, and they talked to Gabe about what happened in the water that day, and things were not adding up to them. So much that they contacted Tina's father to tell him they don't think this was an accident. But more on that later. First, let's hear what they talked to Gabe about and what didn't add up to them. According to an article published by NBC News, Ken Snyder said that Gabe told him this, Quote, she was below me 10 feet or so with her arms outstretched, sinking feet first, and I had to make a split-second decision whether to assist her or go to the surface and get help, unquote. Upon hearing this, Ken was livid. He responded to Gabe saying, you left her, and Gabe said he needed to get help. This did not sit well with Ken, and he said, Gabe, that didn't happen. You better come up with something else, because that story didn't happen. That's what Ken said to Gabe. Ken was actually like, you, your story sucks because this isn't plausible. 
Ken nor Doug did not believe Gabe's story of Tina sinking to the bottom of the seafloor while she was still alive because as Ken sees it, dead people sink, not people who are alive. The other dive master, Doug Millsap, he explains it like this. Quote, panic divers don't relax and raise their hands up in the air and look at you placidly saying goodbye. She's going to be either clawing for his air supply or going for the surface, unquote. Gabe did also say something about he tried to tell Tina to uh, put air in her diving vest or that, that vest that they wear because that makes them more buoyant but he said it wouldn't inflate or it wouldn't work. The fact that Gabe told Ken and Doug Tina was 10 feet below him and he couldn't reach her, that also didn't sit right. Apparently for a diver to grab someone 10 feet below them would take hardly any effort at all. And this is according to Doug Millsap, who is a dive master. He says that two fin kicks and Gabe should have been to Tina if Tina was in fact 10 feet below him. Also, there is a pretty strict rule about never leaving your dive partner, especially in a distressing situation like that. Nothing was making sense to these dive masters. The red flags didn't end there though. Gabe also told Doug that Tina was too heavy and that's why he couldn't pull her to the surface. Doug actually told Gabe that that was bullshit. He said that to Gabe's face. He was like, that's bullshit. Gabe tried to say he tried, but his hold slipped because she was too heavy. Doug, he did not believe this for a second because underwater, her weight wouldn't have been much. He said there is actually no sensation of weight underwater unless your feet are planted on the ground or he he did give a situation, but it didn't apply here. When police get a hold of Gabe's dive computer, they can see Gabe's move in the water that day as the dive computer records all that stuff. The story Gabe was telling police and the evidence found on Gabe's dive computer, they were not the same story. They were different. Gabe said that he tried to go after Tina as she sunk, but his downward fast descent was not showing on the dive computer. Gabe said that once he made the decision to get help, he swam as fast as he could to the surface. The dive computer also did not support this claim. In fact, Gabe's dive computer shows he ascended much, much, much slower than normal, even in a regular, non-urgent situation. What should have taken Gabe 45 seconds to reach the surface took him at least two minutes. Why so slow, Gabe? Tina's father, Tommy Thomas, was only hearing what happened to his daughter from Gabe. Gabe had told Tina's father basically what he told police, but he also told him that he was beside Tina when CPR was being performed on her. He said he was beside her the entire time and he was calling her name like, Tina, come back, Tina, wake up, you know, stuff like this. But he wasn't. He was on an entirely different boat. Tommy contacted police to get more information, but possibly because it was an active investigation, they couldn't tell him much. But you know who could? Ken Snyder, the dive master who was there that day. They somehow get in touch and a month later they sit down and have a chat that went on for hours and hours and hours. 
Ken told Tommy everything he knew about that day, including everything Gabe said to him and Doug and how they responded. Ken was very clear that he did not believe Gabe's story. This is also when Tommy learns Gabe didn't even go see Tina until he knew she was dead and was never beside her while the doctor was trying to revive her. It was hard for Ken, Doug, and Tommy to stomach that. None of the men could fathom not being beside their wife in that situation. Tommy can feel like something isn't adding up, so he gets Alabama police involved on this Australian investigation. The man put on the case is Detective Sergeant Brad Flynn. Detective Flynn, he gets caught up on everything that the Australian police have, and he finds a lot of these things suspicious. Something else happened, but this time in Alabama. Tina was brought back home to be laid to rest, and Gabe, he was also back in Alabama by this time as well. I guess he was free to leave Australia and got back a week after Tina had died. Tina's father, Tommy, kept bringing flowers to Tina's grave and they would disappear. This kept happening and happening and happening. No matter how many times Tommy gave Tina flowers, they would disappear from her grave. Sometimes the same day. Tommy goes to Detective Flynn with this strange occurrence and they actually set up a hidden camera to see what's going on. I mean, Tommy even tried to secure these flowers with wire or like a chain. And someone was cutting that chain to remove the flowers. So this is weird. This is really, really weird. And they wanted to know who would do this. Guess who they caught on camera removing Tina's flowers? That's right, Gabe. Then that Christmas, Gabe sent out a Christmas card with a picture of him and Tina on it. Now there is every opportunity to make this about remembering Tina, about missing her around the holidays, about honoring her, but Gabe made it about him. The card read, who's that sexy guy standing beside Tina? Oh, that's me. And then he also added in a big smiley face. What the? What? What? He sent this to her best friend and who knows who else he sent that to. And again, this was seen as very odd. Australian police were working on either proving or disproving foul play. A doctor who was in the water diving around the same area and time as Tina and Gabe told police he saw Tina being bear hugged underwater before her death. Tina's cause of death was in fact labeled as a drowning, but I also read that she may have encountered oxygen deprivation before drowning. This coupled with the bear hug gave police a theory to test. They were starting to think Tina's air tank was shut off underwater during this what they call face-to-face -face bear hug that this witness saw. So when her air tank was turned off in this bear hug situation she would have passed out and that's why she would have sank to the bottom but before she started sinking to the bottom they believe that her air tank was turned back on so this paints a very haunting picture of what police are theorizing at this point basically someone bear hugging tina turning her oxygen tank off when their hands are behind her back holding her there until she passes out 
and then turning the air tank back on and then releasing her and letting her sink to the bottom. Police go back out to the dive site and they actually test this theory. First, they test Gabe's story. And they're recreating everything as exact as they can. They get a woman who is Tina's size. They put the exact dive gear on her, the same weights, the same suits, all of that stuff. And they go to the exact same location, which Gabe said all this happened at. And three times the female diver who was doing this recreation never landed where Tina's body was found. Tina had been found at least 45 feet away from where the uh, recreation diver kept landing. This diver who was recreating this, this scenario. So something's not adding up in Gabe's version of events when this is actually tested. What's making sense was when they tested the other theory. The more sinister theory that Tina's air was shut off during that bear hug and turned back on after she passed out. And that's why she sunk so easily. And that's why they couldn't see anything wrong with her air supply when they pulled her to the top. This leads to a coroner's inquest in November of 2007. After thoroughly reviewing all the evidence, in June of 2008, coroner David Glasgow writes this in his report. Quote, David Gabriel Watson, I formally charge you that on the 22nd day of October 2003, at the site of the historical shipwreck Yungala, 48 nautical miles southeast from the port of Townsville in the state of Queensland, David Gabriel Watson murdered Christina May Watson, unquote. Christina May Watson is Tina's full name, but she went by Tina, and David Gabriel Watson is Gabe's full name, but he went by Gabe, in case there was any confusion there. This inquest results in Gabe being indicted for murder in 2008 in Australia. Also in that coroner report, I found a section that read something interesting, and I will read it now. Quote, Mr. Thomas, meaning Tina's father, Evidence is that he discussed with Tina shortly prior to her marriage to Gabe. Gabe's request that she not only increase her company insurance to the maximum, but make him the beneficiary. Mr. Thomas said it was resolved that Tina would tell Gabe that such had been done. Evidence was also given by company officers of Gabe's inquiry to the company about Tina's insurance after her death. I am of the view Mr. Thomas' evidence would be admissible in criminal proceedings against Gabe and maybe such to provide a possible motive, unquote. Gabe returns back to Australia to face the trial. The prosecution lays out the theory that Gabe turned off Tina's air whilst underwater until she passed out, then turned it back on as to appear her equipment was in working order when discovered at the bottom of the sea floor. They say his motive was the insurance money, both travel insurance and the life insurance. It was also brought to light that Gabe was a very experienced diver and also certified in rescue diving. So how could he not rescue his own wife in distress? Gabe claimed he never turned off Tina's air and that her drowning was a result of her panicking. The prosecution also brought forward the dive computer evidence, which did not support Gabe's timeline of events from that day Tina died. His dive computer would not work at all if the batteries were in backwards, like we talked about earlier, and would not have made that beeping sound that Gabe 
claims it was making. It was believed that this was a ploy to get him and Tina away from other divers. Also, Gabe's dive computer's depth, boat, like ascending and descending records, it also did not match what he was saying happened, such as rushing to the surface to get help and descending after Tina as she sank. The prosecution also brought up that Tina was wearing way too much weight in her weight belt and she did not need that much. Apparently, it was far, far more weight than she required. June 5th, 2009, Gabe pled not guilty to murder, but he did, however, plead guilty to negligent manslaughter. He wasn't saying he killed his wife. He was just saying that he didn't act in a way that saved her because he himself panicked. Gabe Watson was sentenced to 12 months in prison, which did not go over well with a lot of people. Tina's family was devastated to hear such a light sentence handed down. There was such outrage with this light sentencing that eventually Gabe's sentence was increased to 18 months, which still felt like a slap in the face to Tina's family and the police who worked for so long and so hard on this case. Between the time of Tina's death and this going to Australian court, Gabe had remarried in 2008, and there were many remarks that his new wife looked a lot like Tina. Once Gabe served his Australian sentence, he was sent back to Alabama, where the state wanted to take this case back to trial in 2012, which they did, and Gabe was charged with first-degree murder. This time, the prosecution was seeking a life sentence. However, this ended in Gabe being acquitted of the charge and he was set free. It was pretty well known, though, that crucial evidence was not allowed to be brought into this court this time around, such as hearsay evidence, like the, the stuff about the life insurance motive. As far as I know, this is where the matter ended and it was never taken back to court. In the Australian coroner's report, there was another paragraph I read that was chilling. The coroner wrote this, quote, There are only two persons who know or knew what in fact actually occurred. One is Tina, who cannot tell us, and the other Gabe, unquote. Before I go, I just wanted to talk about this shipwreck site that Tina and Gabe were at, the Young Gala. The SS Young Gala, it has a haunting past. The ship sunk in 1911 during a cyclone and 122 lives went down with it. 122 people had died there. Nobody knew at first where this ship had sunk and only one body washed up on shore and it was a racehorse named Moonshine. 50 years later, so 50 years go by before the sunken ship had been discovered off the shore of Townsville. In 1958, local free divers came across it. Could you imagine being those free divers coming across this shipwreck, this ship that people have been looking for for 50 years that 122 people went missing on the ship by this time the 50 years later it was discovered it was covered in coral and it became this hauntingly tragic and beautiful historical site and a lot of tourists come to dive it when the ship went 
missing and was assumed that it had sunk but nobody knew where it had sunk it was one year before the titanic had actually sunk and then after this the people in townsville in the newspaper it started being called the townsville titanic the bodies of the passengers were never recovered those 122 people who died during that boat sinking nobody ever found them not one After the ship sunk in that cyclone, people reported seeing it still moving up and down the coastline like some kind of ghost vessel. I have included a link to an article about this ship and within that article there's a brief story about a man who was supposed to board that ship but two days before it departed the man met a woman, fell in love and sold his ticket. Eight days later the ship sunk killing everyone on board. The man who sold his ticket, escaped death, went on to have a family with this woman who he met and fell in love with, which is why he didn't get on the boat. And then many, 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 many years later, that man's grandchild went to dive the wreck and writes about it. It's just, I've linked that article if you want to, if you want to read it. Um, Because when I was, the reason why I researched what was happening where the shipwreck came from was because when I was reading about Tina's death it said Yungala takes another life and I was like hold on what do you mean takes another life and I I looked it up I was like Yungala deaths and it was like yeah 122 people died there I was like what So that concludes this week's episode. If you have a moment and are listening on a platform that allows you to rate and follow, please do so. It helps my podcast grow. That's all for today. Thanks for listening and see you next week.